Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In the late 90s, early 2000s, I don't think that people really have an idea of how many records were sold out of this store. Other music at the time was one of the main sources for hearing about music first. Other music championed a lot of these bands really early on. The first time we got a card in other music, we're like, my band's a real thing now. I'm George Chen, and you're listening to SupDoc, the show where we talk documentaries with guests from the worlds of comedy and film. On this episode, I spoke with the directors Paloma Basu and Rob Hatch Miller about their 2019 film, Other Music. Other Music was a record store in New York for 20 years and played a central role in the life of the city's music scene. The store closed in 2016, and this documentary captures its last days, with former employees, fans, and musicians all showing up to pay their respects. There are interviews and guest appearances from Martin Gore of Depeche Mode, Jason Schwartzman, Stephen Merritt of Magnetic Fields, Regina Spector, and even Benicio Del Toro. Hugely influential in the career of bands like Animal Collective, Gary Wilson, and Interpol, other music outlived the Tower Records across the street by a decade, but the writing was on the wall for owners Josh and Chris. This film is a celebration of community at a time when we're all socially distanced and the future of small retail is also in question. While a lot of the film's release plans had to be altered due to quarantine, Other Music is doing a special online release for a limited time starting April 17th, which we explained during our interview. And now here are filmmakers Rob and Paloma. Thank you for meeting with me, Rob Hatch Miller and Paloma Basu, the filmmakers behind Other Music, which I loved. I love this film. I also lived in New York briefly in the year 2000. So it's very much brought a lot of stuff back. And uh, there's so many reasons I is like a tailor made film for me, particularly as someone who was like in the music world uh, at the time and is super nostalgic about retail right now in the quarantine world that we're in. So, um, yeah. Do you want to just kind of talk people through, uh, what this film is about other music being the very legendary record store, uh, in Manhattan? Yeah. So, um, like you, I lived in New York in the year 2000. I moved there and, um, other music, I think I probably went within the first few days of arriving as an NYU freshman, and I was my mind was just blown by this place. It was such a crazy repository of musical knowledge and stuff that you couldn't get anywhere else in New York City at the time. Um, so the film basically tells the story of this super influential record store that existed in New York City from 1995 until 2016. Uh, and was just really the epicenter of the New York music scene at the time, which, you know, included the post 9-11 era of like all the hugely influential bands like the AAS, TV on the radio, the Strokes all sort of came out of selling their 
CDRs on consignment at this shop. Um, it just was a force of nature in the New York music scene. And it's a really fun celebration of what a record store can mean to a music scene in a city. Yeah, I, I'm, I've definitely remember all the shops around that time period. Like there was Etheria and there was a place called Sound and Fury like on off orchard and uh yeah a bunch of i was not there for super long so you probably were also at all the show and you mentioned you were also a wfmu dj but like you know i would go to like the cooler i would go to brownies and mercury lounge and shit like that so this is all brought so much stuff back i sent you uh, a photo i had of karen who was in your film like working at the counter at other music i was at that no age uh, in store. So I might oh, wow. be in some footage somewhere <laughs> in there with like hair. <laughs> yeah. Um, Paloma, were you also a NYU person or had you lived in New York for a long time? No, I were familiar with this. I actually, I moved to New York in 2003. Uh, yeah. But like before that, my sister lived in New York. And so I would always go and stay with her, like, pretty much any time I could. I was going to college in Massachusetts, in Western Mass. And, like, I just, you know, I'm a city person and, like, just really needed to get out and go to go to New York. So I would go as much as possible and I would always go to other music because, like, all of our friends, we were all huge music people and... It was like, you know, even though we weren't in New York, we all knew what that place was. And mm. when we would go to New York, we'd have to go visit, you know. Western Mass has a very specific, weird underground music scene, right? Like the yep. flywheel and like uh, yep. Iron Coley world, mm-hmm. uh, feeding tube world. Yeah. Uh, I'm familiar with some of that stuff. Yeah. like Sonic um, Youth hanging out all the time. Yeah. Like right, because they had a house there, right? Yeah. Yeah, they lived there and we'd see them around a lot in in this really tiny town, you know. And, you know, I served Thurston Moore and... Kim Gordon coffee and whatever, like falafel, like I sold them like a, you know, incense, like all kinds of different things because I worked in all these different places. She's in Silver Lake now or she's like right near my Trader (laughs) Joe's apparently. So, yeah. Not right now, hopefully. Well, not right now at the Trader Joe's, no. But uh, do you remember that weird thing? How long have you guys been in L.A., by the way? Because you were filming. Were you still in New York when you were filming this? Yeah, we were. Yeah. We we moved to L.A. in 2017. Like, hmm. so we completed all the filming, you know, the main filming in the store. The store closed. And then um, Rob was working at uh, Funny or Die at the time. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they decided very suddenly, right at the time when Trump was getting elected, um, that like, oh, like we're closing our New York office and you either have a job or you move to L.A. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, Trump is president. Like, you know, everything's horrible. Don't (laughs) want to lose our health care. Yeah, don't want to lose our health care. I mean... We both lived there for so long in New York, you know. Uh, it's still kind of my home, but yeah, we've been we've been here 
for three yeah. three years. And and honestly, being uh, relocated to LA had a huge effect on the way the film turned out. The editors that we ended up working with are based here in LA. Um, Amy Scott, who directed the Hal Ashby documentary. Um, also, recent guest on your podcast, uh, Arthur w- was the animator oh. of okay, Hal Ashby. Okay, I was going to about the animation. Okay. Um, oh, no, 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 he, he wasn't he our animator. Wasn't he was, he was, yeah. He's uh, the animator of Hal Ashby, and he was oh, the Hal he Ashby. did Feels Good Man, which we, we listened to that interview. It was a great one. Uh, we loved that yeah, film. Yeah, did you Feels see good the film? Man. Oh, it's oh so yeah, good. we saw it. We, yeah. we haven't seen, I think, the final, final cut. We saw, like... The almost final cut. Um, loved it. It's so great. Yeah. It's so I think that's great. The, the cut I saw too is like right before Sundance. Right. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So uh, yeah, and then and then the other editor, Greg King, uh, based here in LA, is just like a brilliant doc editor. He edited um, the Jonathan Gold documentary, City of Gold. Yeah, um, one of my favorites. Yeah, and yeah. he edited a great film about the Elephant Six recording collective, the uh, Apples in Stereo, Olivia Tremor Control, Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, that has only come out as a VHS that gets mailed, but like yeah. <laughs> from person to person, which is like you know I get it. It's kind of cool that they're doing the analog thing, but I'm it's like appropriate this, for the topic, <laughs> right? Right, but it's such a good movie, and I just want everyone to see it. You it's know? a great doc, it, and it's, it's like really you know good. beautifully shot in HD, and I'm sure they're gonna get it released eventually. I'm sure they're like working on music clearances and stuff, but it's a great, great film. It's so great. Greg is yeah. brilliant brilliant edit doc editor speaking of music clearances that's one thing i was thinking about when i was just watching this again it's just like every time you're just shooting something in the store there's some music just like floating in the background do you have to get the rights for everything that's like just kind of floating no not not for that stuff we um on our previous film we made a film called sil johnson anyway the wind blows that played at a lot of film festivals in 2015 2016 um still hasn't been commercially released because of a few lingering uh expensive music licenses uh but uh we did a lot of fair use work on that one with a a law firm donaldson and caliph that's sort of like the gold standard of fair use for documentaries and films in general um so we learned a lot through that process and we worked with them um so we were advised that we do not have to clear the songs that are just playing diegetically in the background in the store that Luckily. was that was a, good that was a great lesson all doc filmmakers listening that's a good tip yeah, yeah that was very good news <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's still a ton of licensed music in the film and it was a challenge to find the funding to pay for the licenses even though they were negotiated by our music supervisor at a very, very, you know, low rates because the artists and the record labels. And by the way, we have a cat that's doing laps around our house. It might be loud. Um, me too. Me, I got one too. Sherby's just like in the bedroom right now. So it's out here. But that was the last. You have like so many artists love the store that it makes sense that they would be willing to work it out. Yeah, but it still adds up. I mean, it we're paying everybody f- low fair rates and. They're very low for the rights that we have, but um, it was still a lot of money that we had to get kind of in a, in a rush well, in the last had, few months. We had like 57 cues that we had to pay for. I think it's, <laughs> I like, think it's more than 60. I think it's like, like it was like 57. I think it's 62, but anyway, it's a lot. And so even, yeah. even though um, everybody was really wonderful and like worked with us, like because they cared about the place, you know, it's still like 
added up so fast. So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we, we finally raised the the final money to pay for all the licenses in just in the last month, like right in the early days of the coronavirus. Literally, outbreak. actually, we got the final like money like the day before we started sheltering in place. And oh wow! And I like I couldn't tell you how relieved we were because like who would want to help us out after like the world has you know after we all find out that the world has fallen apart you know yeah um so it happened the day before the world fell apart <laughs> there's so much awesome music in in this film uh I I even love the guy at the end I remember looking up the guy that you used on your end credits the harpist guy oh that's uh, not that's actually not in the film anymore yeah we we, oh. we actually <laughs> but that was there was a there was a live in store by Tumani Diabate um an African Akora player um that we loved over the end credits but it was kind of a bigger record label to license from right okay and end credits music is expensive and it was also like very difficult to identify exactly what the composition was. Right, that was like the hard, you know, our music supervisor, amazing uh, music supervisor, Don Sutter Maydell, who's in our movie because she's married to one of the owners. Oh, um, oh, Don, she's Don. She does yeah, music Dawn. licensing. That's yep. so perfect. That yeah. Is like, okay. Yeah. So okay. I was actually uh, Don has a music supervision company that's been around for years, and they've recently done a lot of like. Uh, Steve James films and um, they did the Albert Maisel's um, In Transit film that was like just I think digitally released just a few weeks ago for a limited time Um, so she's had this company for years she used to primarily do commercials but she's moved more into like TV and she did like the um, Hilda animated series for Netflix with um, like Grimes did the uh theme music um so i i was actually don's intern when i was an nyu student in 2002 (laughs) um and she got me a job at other music uh i started working there when i was a sophomore or junior at nyu (laughs) um it's not part of the film because it's not a first person documentary but uh, that's sort of like how we have all the access to yeah. the people and the place, um, and we were able to really put together the production super fast because we already had such a deep relationship. We already knew them; they really trusted us, you know. Um, and like Rob and I met through someone who's in the film, uh, Dwayne Harriet, who worked there oh, yeah. for for a very love, long time. Love him as a character yeah. in there, yeah. Yeah, he he is one of our dearest friends and. I think there's no one on earth who I've learned more about music from than Dwayne Harriet. Oh, pretty much. I I could say that without even hesitating for a second. <laughs> He's like an encyclopedia of yeah. music. What a crazy job to be like your first, was that your first record store job? First and only. Yeah. I think I, in high school, I worked at like a guitar shop in Phoenix, Arizona and Blockbuster. <laughs> I worked in a Blockbuster video in, yeah. in Scottsdale, Arizona. Frequent customer was Alice Cooper, who would rent rom-coms exclusively. I remember him renting Tin Cup. <laughs> <laughs> he loves golf. But uh, yeah, other music was a dream job. And it was just, I mean, that's, it's just a magical place. I mean, we found out they were closing in the summer of 2016. And um, Paloma and I were both working uh, 
that day. I think it was like a Wednesday or something. So we met up at the store afterwards and it was like we were in a movie. I mean, it was just, there's TV crews showing up to like local news reporting on it, everybody coming and crying, just like so emotionally charged. And, and we were like, someone has to make a film about this store before it's gone. Um, and initially I thought that we were too close to it to make the film, which was, I don't know why I thought that. I just... He was adamant. He he didn't just think that. He was like, we can't make... Someone needs to make this movie. Like it was ethically... Yeah, but it, it can't be us, you know? <laughs> so um, we emailed like every doc filmmaker we knew of in New York who we thought would be interested. And everybody was like, I have a project going on right now. Like I can't start immediately and have six weeks to shoot. So... And they would add... But you guys should do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that is also, I feel like when I think when I talk to someone else about like often with filmmakers, doc filmmakers, that ends up being like how it happens. Like I think actually Arthur is, originally was like pitching the idea and people were like, you should just make the film when it came to feels good, man. So yeah, I could see that. And yeah, you you had the insight into the world. How long did you work there from 2002 till when? So I worked there for about three years. So it was like my last two years of college and my first year after college. And then after that, I went back to work for Dawn, uh, the, the other music's owner's wife, at her music supervision company for a few years. And then after that, I got really interested in making documentaries, um, which I'd, I'd gone to NYU for film school and wasn't docs were not something that was really even on my radar. I did take a documentary class that um, really kind of opened my eyes to the form. Um, but I actually like went to the class so infrequently that I got an incomplete and I got my diploma a year late. <laughs> um, I had to like go back and rewatch all the films and write about them. Um, and that actually kind of made me love documentaries. Uh, this professor was George Stoney, who was like a guy that was involved with a lot of like CBC stuff and like a lot of he he was really passionate about like putting the camera in the subject's hands he would like do projects with like people on um indian reservations where like they would be the filmmakers um and he just was like a, this beautiful man who was very beloved at nyu um and through that class i think i watched this film my country my country by laura poitras and it was a film about the iraq war and it was like around the time of um, you know, late George W. Bush era and things were very fraught politically and I just like got really passionate about docs. And I I emailed Laura Poitras one day when I was still working for Dawn at the music supervision company and said like, you know, I'm a NYU film graduate, really interested in documentaries and I'd love to like have the opportunity to like work on something with you. And like two weeks later, I was working for her, and that was my first job in documentary. <laughs> Wait, so she made Citizen Four, right? Yeah. She made Citizen Four. So I worked on her previous film before Citizen Four uh -huh. um, called The Oath, which is an amazing film that premiered at Sundance in 2010. Um, it's about a guy who was Osama bin Laden's... Um, Driver. Yeah, personal, like, chauffeur. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And... Uh, it was like such an amazing experience. I worked with this amazing editor, Jonathan Oppenheim, who cut um, Paris is Burning. Paris is Burning. <laughs> wow. And yeah. um, got to go to Sundance with that film. And then I kind of like subsequently worked mostly in post production on some other docs, like um, 
Eugene Jarecki's um, The House I Live In, which was like a Sundance uh, Grand Jury Prize winner and other things like that before we started kind of making our own stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but Rob, also looking at your resume, you have this insane like comedy world connection. Like you seem to have worked with a ton of like comedy people and then obviously working for Funny or Die. And like, do you, do, how did that happen out of working with Laura Poitras on like Osama Bin Laden's driver? Yeah. So we, uh, it was really through WFMU or the radio station okay. in New Jersey where yeah. I was a DJ. So I, I became really good friends with this guy, Tom Sharpling, who had a show called The Best Show on WFMU. It's now just called The Best Show and it's a streaming web show and a podcast. And, um, shortly after Paloma and I met when we were working on the Sil Johnson film together, uh, Tom asked us to like help out. He wanted to direct a music video um, for this band, Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. And oh it, yeah, I think I remember that video. Right? Yeah, it yeah, was I a video remember. that had like um, Paul F. Tompkins and John Hodgman, okay. Pearson or something, Julie Klausner. Oh. Um, it was like a, a you know, it it's was a spoof of the Green Day Broadway musical. Yeah, um, American right. Idiot. <laughs> Um, I do remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember, like, there's a lot of setup in this before the music starts. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, actually, like, I, I, yeah, I love Paul F. Tompkins, too. So, yeah. So we, awesome. we ended up producing that video that Tom wrote and directed. And Well, Tom asked him to produce it. Or Tom was like, look, I've been asked to make a video and I don't know what to do. Like, so um, what, you know, how are you, you know, how can we make it happen? And Rob was like, well, I can produce it, but. But then he came back to me and was like, I've never produced anything. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was Not working. Not since film school. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and me neither. You know, I was working in film um, ever since I got to New York. And I was working, well, I tried a few different things, but I ended up in locations, which, you know, is kind of like something that makes you think about producing in a, in a way, like you learn about it without realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um so I was like, well, I can help you, you know. And then after that, Rob and I made. Like- yeah, we produced like a dozen or more like sort of comedy music videos with Tom directing and writing. And um, that was all sort of at the same time we were working on the Sil Johnson documentary. So we did a lot of comedy stuff together. And and the Ted Leo and the Pharmacist video, um, Tom, before it was released, sent it to Adam McKay, who uh, was one of the founders of Funny or Die. Uh, and it ended up being the first music video that premiered on Funny or Die. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So that sort of oh, many years later led to me working for them. Yeah, like it kind staff. of opened the door, you know. And I remember like when that job came up, like Rob was like, you should apply for this. And I was like, I don't want to work for a company, you know, like you do it. Um, and he like a pattern it. emerging of people suggesting things for you. And then you just agreeing to them. <laughs> oh, I really wanted that job. Yeah, I mean, he, <laughs> he, it was it was great for him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the world is changing quickly in a lot of ways, and so much of it happens in the virtual world now. And for sure, there are a lot of positives to that. But there's, um, you know, the the magic of human interaction and the way it kind of forces you to be in the moment and to sort of have a real give and take and a dialogue is something that can only be experienced face to face. It's easier than ever to reach people, but at the same time, you're just constantly trying to cut through a wave of noise that's coming at people all the time. Hey, man, how you doing? Good. I really feel for musicians trying to 
get started nowadays. It's so much easier to get lost in the crowd, whereas something about knowing that there are people at a record store kind of like there to like stand behind certain groups and, and, and talk to people about them that they really like and get people to get, get things, it's different. And now it's also strange because it's like robots are telling you what you like. And that's a great clip from other music. And we're talking about like, yeah, the, the algorithms. Everyone feels weird about, I mean, film. Algorithms are affecting film recommendations, uh, obviously music recommendations, book recommendations, all this stuff now. Um, and also like, yeah, it seems like there was a peak. They, they were addressed in the film that there was a peak point where they were selling the most stuff was probably in this sort of CDR era, uh, sort of like right around the year 2000. And then it was sort of like downhill from there. They were talking about that. And yeah, I, uh, as someone who worked there, you must have gone through that whole process. You guys talk about that process of like uh, writing down on a sheet of paper every, is it every bin card or every artist that you could find? It was every basically subdivision, every divider card in the store. So like every artist that had their own section um, and every like label that had their own section and every like specific like subgenre section. So we had to take a, a like a legal pad on your first day of, or your first several days of working at the store and just go through and write down everything so that you would start to familiarize yourself with what was in the shop because you know, even for people who knew a lot about music, and I knew a fair amount, I think uh, I didn't know nearly as much as some of the other people when they probably started. But, you know, uh, it was such an intimidating place because if you think about it at the time, like in 2001, there was tons of stuff on the internet you could read about music, but it wasn't as nearly as comprehensive as it is now. And you also couldn't access, like, listening to the music like you can now. If you type in Amon Duel 2 on YouTube, you can check out all of their albums or on, you know, if you want to pay for it, you can probably find some of them on Apple Music or Spotify or Tidal or whatever it is that you use. But at the time, you had to know somebody who had a copy of the thing or mm. maybe find it on like LimeWire or something if you were lucky. Um, yeah. Or spend N the money Napster. to buy it yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that um, was around the Napster LimeWire world. Sort of was around ninety nine, two thousand. Also, yep. that's kind of when that really came on the scene. But I think it probably did help in the sense that, like, uh, you guys talk about how so many CDRs were being sold in the store, and like I remember that really fertile CDR period, and like talking about like William was William Basinski just like burning CDRs of of. Uh, uh, disintegration loops. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Selling those, yeah. Yeah, he started coming in um, a few months after 9-11 because um, I, I think I started working at the store in 2002, like in the first quarter or first half of 2002, and that was right around the time he started bringing that CD in. And for people who don't know about it, it's this beautiful, like, landmark minimalist composition that is these short kind of swelling orchestral tape loops that he made um, that he would just like run over and over and over again for an hour or more through this kind of shitty old tape machine. Um, and the tapes would literally like fall apart as they played. Flake off. Um, and it's kind of this like metaphor for the, you know, falling of the Twin Towers and everything that was happening in New York at the time. Um, and, mm. uh, it's a really beautiful piece of music that has 
subsequently become very influential um, and celebrated. Um, but at the time, it was just like this, you know, kind of New York character coming in with these CDRs. Um, we'd sell them, you know, he'd bring in a hundred and they'd all sell out. He'd bring in a hundred more, they'd all sell out. And then he's like, you know, performing it at Lincoln Center 15 years later. (laughs) It's like all consignment based. That's crazy. And, um, yeah, so the, you obviously were someone who were really, was really living music, inhaling music. If you were like working at, at WFMU and at other music at the same time, which I think there were a few people that overlap there. That did both, or maybe um, years earlier, there were a few people that did. Both. Yeah, there were very, there were people over the years that had connections to both. Like, there's a Robin Edgerton was like somebody mm-hmm. that um, was at WFMU before I was there, and other music before I was there. And Dwayne Harriet has become a WFMU DJ um, uh, in more recent years. Yeah, like maybe his show is like five, six years, something like yeah. that. Yeah, there's definitely like a. But after, but there. after he left other music, he started DJing at FMU. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, like it, it's sort of like you're, it's very. I, I I do wonder about like the gathering of physical space for people right now, especially in this time that we're in right now. We're really thinking about the value of that a lot of, of like not just a retail space, but just the community center aspect that like a community radio station would have or a record store would have. And yeah, it's like, like the, the start, I remember seeing the footage of that parade, which was like the $75 bill people doing the parade. Was it Matana Roberts or something? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Jazz artist. Yeah. And like, just sort of like how many people clearly, came out of the woodwork to celebrate the space and just like, and obviously there's that show at the knitting factory at the end. Bowery ballroom. Oh, Bowery ballroom. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. sorry. Um, yeah. So it's, it's like people also really just like, yeah, like music is like such a huge part of people's identities and, um, Obviously, I don't know if it's different now for a different generation. I do feel like there is sort of a generational peg to some of this stuff when you see like people that collect things and get and it's very nostalgia oriented in some ways. But um, yeah. uh, Yeah, I think I mean, it's crazy to me because when we were working on this film, we were thinking about like, you know, these record stores are disappearing and these video stores are disappearing and soon it'll only be like you know, coffee shops and restaurants that people can get together in and like, you know, maybe meet somebody randomly, strike up a conversation, make a friend, fall in love, find out something they didn't know about. But now we don't even have that. That's insane. (laughs) Like I thought we thought like best case scenario, there would be, you know, like a fancy, cool coffee shop people hang out in. But like after this thing is over, like, We'll be lucky if 50% of those places still exist. Like, Starbucks will be fine. You'll be able to go to Chili's. But, like, we're going to all wake up six months or a year from now and, like, half... It's like Avengers Endgame. Like, (laughs) one snap and, like, half of everything you loved is gone. Like... Yeah. Yeah. um, uh, It's just hard to fathom because at the time we were just thinking about how, like, sad it was that we were losing record stores specifically but now we're just like we're losing everything yeah and and then all of a sudden you know the thing that we really 
wanted to do was like not say that the fact that everything moved to streaming or the internet was bad because we don't think it's bad. We're music lovers. So we think it's awesome that you can listen to whatever you want, whenever you want. Um, so we tried really hard to not make it too backward looking or like, Oh, everything used to be great. And you know, now it sucks <laughs> because we don't truly think that's true. Nor did the owners of other music. Yeah, They didn't, the they always the tried to like, figure out a way to exist as all the changes happened in the music industry. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we do cover that in the film. Like they, they really did try. And yeah. Yeah. Like the website, they tried to do the MP3 store and obviously like the newsletter was very important for a lot of people in that sort of time when it was really hard to get like even samples of music, um, figuring out how to do that. I also like, I think like it's interesting because of, I think a lot of things that have happened in other forms of media have been trailing music in a sense. Like I've been looking at music as sort of like the canary and the coal mine, like videos like shortly has followed kind of a little bit of the pattern that music has followed in terms of like shrinkage and things or like now, yeah, I like, mean, so like I've, people don't even want to like pay to rent a movie online anymore. It's like, if it's not on the streaming service there that you already pay for and it's not some bingeable like series or, you know, something super high profile like that, things just completely disappear off the face of the earth so fast. Yeah, I, I really hope, you know, and, and this is all I'll say about it, but I think what is getting everyone through this time that we're all at home is music, film, all all kinds of art that like, we, you know, that is really what everyone is looking forward to every day that they wake up. It's like, I can do this that'll be comforting. Um, so maybe we'll come out of this where everyone will start to think of art as essential and not as something that they get to have for free. You know? <laughs> Grocery store is art. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, to, for the sake of, uh, what well, my day job, I do work at a digital streaming service, so, but I am also a physical hoarder. Like I do, I kind of have my toes in both worlds, right? Like I, I enjoy all those things, but just like the infrastructures of so many things, like I was not even just thinking about like record stores, but also like record distributors, mm -hmm. record labels, like all the way down the entire supply chain, like pressing plants, uh, just within just one industry you just look at that. Every industry is being affected, obviously. Oh, like, yeah. Podcast even sort of like it's been sort of interesting to see like what's going on with podcasts in the middle of all this, because obviously people's like morning drive commute is gone and evening commute is gone. But I'm, then, a, I'm a huge podcast listener and my consumption of podcasts has dropped dramatically. Like I'm going to have two several months worth of like my five or six favorite podcasts that I just haven't listened to because... I'm at home with a two-year-old and my wife all day. We're washing dishes, we're cooking, we're eating, we're trying to get our two-year-old to take a nap. At the end of the day, we're listening to music or watching something, and there's very little time to listen to a podcast. Yeah. Even though, like, there's there's something so, like, comforting about podcasts and you, like, develop the relationships with the people who host them, and um, it's like, I love podcasts, but... Um, yeah, it's it's strange. Yeah, we're we're just in a weird. Yeah, it's just yeah. hard. 
No, for sure. And also like stuff like the fact that sports is canceled. There's yeah. Like a whole genre of podcast that's very, it's been cobbled. By, <laughs> yeah. well. I hadn't um, even thought about that. That's yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And I'm we're also like with Goop I mean, or like alternative health people or something oh, right. about it right now. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, you know, you said you work for a streaming service and we're like, we're avid streamers. Like we personally, we use Apple Music just because I, 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 I guess I'm like old and I'm familiar with like the, the iTunes iPhone music interface. Um, but I love music streaming and I, I think it's great. And I listen to way more new music than I think. I ever did before just because yeah. you know, the way that the, at least Apple Music or organizes things, you, you know, find out about a new record and it's right there in your like recent editions. And I tend to go back to the more recent things more than anything else. And I love that I have access to, you know, every record by, you know, if I want to do a deep dive on an artist and listen to like 20 Georgia Jones albums, I can check out everything. And if I want to like, check out every new album that Trouble in Mind or Merge puts out. I can listen to everything and only keep the ones that I like. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, but I and we only wanted... really started doing that after other music closed. Though. Yeah, because like other <laughs> when when other music was open, like we could, you know, well, we were still listening to new stuff, but we would be like, we would go and we buy would it. go and buy it at other music, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like we'd be random, like, yeah. Because um, they never got they once you worked there, your employee discount never went away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was wondering Lifetime. like there you had so many employees in this film. I'm just like, how this must this is over a 20 year period, right? Not everyone was working at the same time. No. Sure. Yeah. No, way. no there's kind insane. of there's kind of you, the film. You get a sense of like the old school clerks who are interviewed in it. And you also get a sense of like the people that were working there in 2016, most of whom had only been there two, three, four years. There were a couple sort of like lifer people that had been there for like 10 years or more, but mostly there was turnover among the staff. People would go off and do other things and kind of graduate past the retail world. But at the end, um, one of the owners, Chris Vanderloo, had always had this idea of like doing this thing called classic clerks where he, he would bring back like, you know, some old like customer employee. favorite. Employees. Yeah. Some old employee could come back and do a shift and just like, you know, <laughs> that would be like a classic clerk thing. Um, he never got to do it, but he never got to do it. But then it did happen at the end, you know, because like everyone was so emotional. Everyone was like, oh. I just like want to come back and work for like stand behind the counter. Yeah. And, like, and it was great because it gave us an opportunity to like shoot an interview with somebody who had like worked at other music in 2003 and also have like observational verite footage and b-roll of them in the store kind of okay. as they had been you know 10 years before right right that makes more sense now that knowing that you also worked there and you knew kind of the arc of like a lot of these people from that period as well and um yeah uh I, lisa garrett is someone i knew back mm -hmm. in the day she's in your film with her kid it's very cute yeah um yeah uh Dave Portner, you can't really talk about the film without mentioning Animal, Animal Collective. Collective heads out there. Dave Portner and Terror worked at Panda Bear, uh, the store. And I guess like I didn't realize they, like their first show was probably an in-store at at the stores. And yeah, they yeah. they they their first show wasn't an in-store, but they you know the first place that sold their music anywhere on earth was Other Music. Um, uh, their first several releases were like sold that other music before anywhere else and you know it was like 
when Animal Collective played a show in New York at the time, it was like the entire staff of other music was there and on the guest list. Um, it was very much like a family occasion. <laughs> AV Tear and Panda Bear era. Basically. That's right. Yeah, before yeah. the name. Early, like, Sung, Sung Tongs, you know, Feels era, like, before they blew up with Meriwether Post Pavilion and everything. Yeah. Um, and and Beans from Antipop Consortium was also in your footage. A lot of in-star footage. Um, did the in-star footage come from all over, or did they have archives of that stuff? So um, the in-star footage came primarily from two people. Um, one was this guy, Derek Yip, who was just a passionate fan and like wanted to like document, like it was his idea. So he kind of like was like, listen, I have like video equipment, like to Josh Medell, who's one of the owners of the store. And he was like, I can just like shoot all of your in-stores and then you guys can do whatever you want with them. And like, they always had this attitude where they were like, okay, Derek, you know? <laughs> so a lot of the time they would have an in-store and like forget to call him and they would be like on the phone with him being like, hey, so like, um, who's Elliot, the, Elliot Smith. Smith is playing in an hour. Like, can you get here by then? And he'd be like, I'm in Queens. Like, I can't, like, you know, <laughs> like, um, oh. and he's still mad about it. He was still angry that about the Elliot Smith in store. Um, but he has a crazy archive yeah, of like 200 like, other music in stores. And what's represented in the film is just like, you know, a drop in the bucket. But there's stuff like, you know, Neutral Milk Hotel, 1996, the first ever recorded known performance of Two-Headed Boy um, is in the film, which is like a song that was very, very important to me as like a high schooler in the late 90s. Uh, and then he's got, you know, we've got his footage of like the go-betweens and the Gary Wilson. Stereo. Gary, Gary Wilson, Wilson yep. uh, Wilds, you know, 70s kind of outsider rock, soul, funk, weirdo, genius musician who's still really active. And if you have a chance to see him play live, he's still phenomenal live. Yeah, he just accepted a friend request from me on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, who else is in there from the Derek archives? Um, oh, uh, Apples in Stereo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, there is, uh, oh, boy. So many people. There's I'm a like, bunch. A lot of them are used very briefly. But yeah. then there, there was also a woman named Natalie Johns, who's a filmmaker who kind of did more professional multi-camera in-store um, uh, videos that were released online years back. Um, and there's some of her footage in there too, like St. Vincent and the No Age. Uh, the No Age one was that her. You referenced. Yeah. yeah, I remember there being more than one camera at that. Yep. And like some, I might have crowd surfed or something. I don't know <laughs> if you dig through that, you might see it. Um, so w there's just so much to pull on, when, the threads to pull on when you're shooting this stuff. Was it partly just you knew you had six weeks to get all the store footage? Um, but so other than that, like, is that sort of a framing thing where you just like, you can't pull on every thread. You just need to just kind of cover as much stuff to get the arc of the whole store history uh, rather than just, there's so many wormholes. Like I want to go down, which is like the Gary Wilson story, like that could be like a half hour of its own. Like, um, like the Basinski thing could be its own thing. The Jackson C. Frank thing, all these like sort of you, it's just, it's, it's so much stuff like pops up and it just gets my spidey senses like tingling. <laughs> like I just want to like continue these conversations. How did you know what to 
include and what to cut out? Well, I mean, I, I think I would start with talking about how we decided to shoot what we shot, because like you said, we had six weeks. We started shooting, the clock was ticking on the existence of this place as a physical space. We knew we could go back and do interviews with people later on, but we felt like it would be more powerful if we could try to interview as many people in the space as possible because that's, I mean, it's weird. This is like a, it's in a way, it's like a single location movie. It doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like you're watching like my dinner with Andre or some like <laughs> film that just takes place in one room, but it kind of is. It's like takes place in with this little tiny shop. So we thought that trying to interview as many people as we could, like in the back room of the store would kind of make them more emotionally connected to like their memories of the place. Um, mm -hmm. So basically what we did was we just shot all day, every day for six weeks with almost no breaks. Yeah, take like turns. I, I, um, so we had found out on a Wednesday and my job that I was on was a Noah Baumbach movie was ending that Friday. So Noah it, Baumbach also makes a very brief cameo. Yeah, in the movie. he's in the. I uh, declined in, to do an interview, but like he was a regular customer, and back when the Squid and the Whale was like in post production, and he was kind of like in a big downswing of his career, like he was kind of like not considered a very successful filmmaker at the time. He would come in multiple times a week, and like the whole soundtrack of the Squid and the Whale is like all stuff that he bought at other music. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, and then that movie was like huge. Yeah, success. that turned things yeah. around for him. Yeah. And anyway, I was working on I was working on a film uh, for Noah Baumbach, and then um, that ended. So I was like all of a sudden jobless, and instead of taking another job, I just you know we were like, okay, we just have to start. And so I would start the day like and film all day long by myself. And then Rob would come after, after, funny or after Funny or Die and then take the camera away from me because I couldn't hold it anymore. <laughs> um, and and then, then I would shoot until they went home, which yeah. was basically, you know, they were there really late nights those last few months because yeah. they were really super busy. I mean, the store was always well-trafficked. It never kind of like hit a huge lull. I mean, they weren't doing nearly as well financially as in their heyday, but it was still like a place that people went all day, every day. But when they announced they were closing, it was just like, and it, you know, they couldn't keep things on the shelves. Like they had to like constantly be reordering stuff. So they would be there till like, you know, they'd close at 8 or 9 p.m. They'd be there till midnight and I would shoot, you know, until yeah. they locked the doors. Pretty much. And we would call, we, we emailed like all of the former staff and asked them to come back and do interviews. So our days were split between pure observational verite shooting and kind of going into a back room, asking them to turn the music down a little bit and um, kind of asking all of the former staff the same list of questions that, you know, I, we said earlier at first that I wasn't sure we were the right people to make the film, but then as we started working on it, I realized that anybody else wouldn't have had like a research phase or they wouldn't have had time for it. So it really helped us that like we hit the ground running. I already knew the whole history of the store and I already knew everything that, that I thought was significant. So we were able to sort of make a pretty tight, you know, one to two hour interview question list that we did for everybody that touched on things like what were some in-stores that you loved? What were like some records that were really influential? Like, how did you get the job here? What was it like to work here? Um, like, 
how do you feel like the music industry has changed since you worked here and how does it make you feel that this place is Closing. shutting down and it was just so emotional yeah, <laughs> yeah just I like say did you guys i almost want to start crying thinking it? about it right now oh yeah a lot i was I like imagine i was like the crying camera person like <laughs> for six weeks yeah. um yeah it was the best it was like um I am someone who loves like Disneyland is like a very important place to me that I'm, makes me feel yeah, very emotional. Weird. Like it's very other weird. music was like my <laughs> musical Disneyland. Um, it's like Disneyland closing. <laughs> In which it, hey, guess what? That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's closed right now. Um, I, there was one thread I wanted to pick up, which was the Kim story, which is sort of like the beginning of this story. And I'm like, I remember there's there's a whole documentary to be made about Kim's, right? There is someone's one, making one right now. Oh, yeah. About like his weird, the weird, the library ended up in like Italy or something. Yeah, like actually, that. actually, so the film we think is primarily about that part of the story and not about Kim's, you know? But so for people that don't know what Kim's is, Kim's was like this legendary New York underground video rental store that was like, it was mind-blowing. Like, you can't even imagine. Like, yeah. It is the gold standard of video stores anywhere. It was like they had everything on earth, every bootleg of any, like, you know, weird, like, Russian film that you couldn't get anywhere. Um, and it was just like this awesome, like library of, of, um, cinema that people in New York had access to in these years. And other music was sort of born out of this video store that was started in a very bizarre way. It was actually a, like a Korean owned laundromat and, or dry cleaners. Um, and they had a customer who was like a crazy, weird New York cinephile who somehow convinced the owner of the dry cleaners that he should start renting avant-garde <laughs> cinema like vhs at his dry cleaners and it turned into this sort of empire i think at their height they had like five yeah locations and after a couple of years um mr kim the owner decided that he should like bring music in because that would make sense and he hired these guys to start his music section and those guys josh chris and jeff uh after a couple of years built this um, music section at Kim's that was really successful and they were like why are we doing this for someone else like we should just like go to the bank get a loan open our own place uh, and that's how other music was born yeah um, I love I love that story though like when we were interviewing um, Jason Schwartzman um, w we told him the story about how Kim's was like a dry cleaner and then and he was like he did this really funny joke where he was like imagine the guy that like went there like one day to like get his jacket that he never picked up you know and was like wait you guys rent what? movies now <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's awesome um so this film is also going to be available uh around the time we're dropping this episode do you want to talk about where people can see other music yeah, so uh, the movie premiered at Tribeca Film Festival in 2019 um, and has played at a bunch of film festivals since then. Um, 
We oh, you guys did noise pop, right? How was that screening? We did. It was great. We played had two screenings at the Alamo Draft House in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a great festival run. Um, we got to travel to a lot of places for it. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't show internationally as much as we'd hoped, but that's okay. Um, the the to the making documentaries is very hard. Like there's so much weird competition and. It's, uh, I don't know why we do it, but we, we love, uh, true stories. Um, so we had a hell of a time finding distribution through our sales agents. Um, everyone you can think of as a distributor said no. Um, and then eventually we just went to our friend, Matt Grady, who has a great, um, one man, super indie film distribution company in Brooklyn called Factory 25. We've known Matt for years. He's done a lot of great movies. He's done sort of mumblecore, Joe Swanberg type things like Alex Ross Perry's first film, um, The Color Wheel. Um, he did a great doc about Jay Riotard that he released, who's like a punk uh, singer from Memphis who died tragically way too young. Uh, he also released a film about WFMU, the radio station that we've been talking about in New Jersey right. where I was a DJ. Um, I, I, we, I interviewed that director as well on this show. So. Yeah. Um, so we went to Matt and we were like, we don't have distribution for this movie yet. And well, Matt kind of like told us right from the beginning. He was like, well, just let me keep me posted because we sent him a link really early on before we even showed it at Tribeca. And he was like, well, I love the film and, you know, let me know. And so we always had him kind of in the back of our mind and, so we, you know, after our sales agents didn't find anybody, we went to Matt and we were like, you know, our, I think I mentioned earlier in the interview that our previous film uh, still hasn't come out commercially because of some licensing issues. And we did not want that to happen with this movie. We're just like dead set on no matter how much money we still owe that we don't know how we're going to find. We are signing a distribution deal with somebody, even if there's no money involved, like this place is so important and so important to us, we can't let it wait any longer. So we signed a distribution deal with Factory 25 and planned a um, theatrical opening at IFC Center in New York that was supposed to happen Wednesday, April 15th, a few days before what was supposed to be Record Store Day, Saturday, April 18th. And neither of those things are happening now. <laughs> it was like, yeah, um, you know, it was like, 30 plus cities around the world were going to show it and it was going to be really amazing. And, and it was such a big deal for us that we we're going to have a film at IFC Center. It was going to be at know. IFC Center for a week. It was going to have a full one week run at the Northwest Film Forum in Seattle. It was going to have a full one week run at a movie theater in San Diego. In it was going to play in London, Toronto, uh, Prague, Amsterdam, Amsterdam. Berlin. Yeah, it was like, it was, it was amazing. Um, but yeah, that was like when we lived in the other world. Um, yeah, the before time. The before the before, snap. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Before Thanos. So then, yeah, so then anyway, so then when it all fell apart, we were like, well, we really don't know when anyone, even after we're able to like go back to some level of normalcy, like, I don't know when people are going to feel like, ready to go back to the theater and who knows how long we would have to wait. Not you know? to mention how many theaters are still going to be able to like oh, reopen their doors. I mean, we have three, three theaters that have Indiegogo's happening right now because they're like, 
we're going to go out of business. You know, and and that's the reality that yeah. we're, we're looking at. Like a lot of these really cool art house indie places are just not going to make it to the other side. And it's heartbreaking. So yeah. we we Even really the fact that record stores may not this may be the last documentary about a record store if if, if you know oh boy all these record stores get like, under. I really really don't want that to be true. Yeah, but um, we so we we're really contending with like do we wait? Do we just wait it out and see? You know, mm-hmm. do we open at IFC Center in June or July or August or September or twenty twenty one or do we? kind of get this film out now because you know we really think that this story that speaks to like the way that the world has just become more and more online is more relevant than ever to people that are stuck in their houses and can only see their friends through the internet now it's like it just seemed to really speak to the situation that we're facing and the situation of all these small businesses our film is really about community and the importance of human interaction like in person um and that's literally something that none of us can have right now and and um i hate that this is the case but i feel like people will connect to our film a little bit more in this moment and like Mm -hmm. and i think that ultimately it's like a celebratory film and it makes you feel like good in the end you know which we really tried for that to be the case, we didn't want it to be like mopey and sad. Um, and I think like maybe it'll give people 82 minutes of a reprieve from what's happening outside right now, you know? But, yeah. So um, what ended up happening is we were just deciding, do we wait or do we, you know, record store day, which we had originally timed our release around, although we're not like officially um, affiliated with them in any way. Um, we'd planned our release around Record Store Day because it's when people are celebrating record stores. We thought it'd be good for press and PR. Record Store Day moved their date to June 20th, but we were like, Seems can optimistic. we really count on that happening? Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> I do not know if, like, I mean, the pressing plants are closed, so I right. don't even know if that can get met. Yeah. So yeah. our feeling was like, we should just try to still get it out around the April 18th original Record Store Day date. And we were initially thinking, like, do we try to get this up on Amazon Prime, which, you know, has sort of some weird negative political implications right now? Mm-hmm. It um, just didn't feel right. Like, the more we thought about it, we were like, they're going to be the only ones that are, like, doing great after all this, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, it just felt wrong. Well, we were trying yeah. to figure out what to do, and then um, our distributor was approached by Oscilloscope. Um, who had taken a strong look at our film and ultimately decided not to release it, but they were really familiar with it. Um, and they said, like, you know, we're trying to set up this kind of experimental virtual cinema platform that is something that a lot of people are trying out because these movie theaters need a revenue source. Um, so we basically were working with Oscilloscope through our distributor, Factory 25, to release the film as a virtual cinema, quote-unquote, release. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really just a, a rental that you pay for through a movie theater's website or a record store's website. So we have over 60 movie theaters and record stores all across the country that are participating. Um, starting April 17th, you'll be able to rent the movie, um, watch it at home, watch it on your laptop or your your phone if you want a Quibi-type experience, <laughs> um, or if you can watch it on your iPad or you can stream it to your Chromecast or whatever. So basically, 
we're doing we're, we're making it as available as it would be as if it was on iTunes or something, but doing it through these independent retailers that are really struggling right now. And um, they're going to get like 50% of the proceeds. So it feels like we really want them to like, you know, thrive, like, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah. Um, are you going to be able to uh, find an entire list of all the stores involved on your website or anything? Or is it, how are you going to be able to, is there a centralized yes. to find all that stuff? Yeah. So the, the participating stores are all going to be um, putting it on their own social medias. They'll have their own um, unique link that people can purchase the film through them so that they get the proceeds. So they'll be promoting that on their social media, their websites, their email lists, and then... We'll also have a master list of all the participating stores that'll be primarily located on the Factory 25 website, um, but we'll also be kind of linking to that through our website, othermusicdocumentary.com, where you can also find the trailer and some, you know, information, a list of people that are interviewed in the movie. It's like, it's it's really a star-studded documentary. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, somebody from the from Star Wars The Last Jedi is in our <laughs> movie, Benicio <laughs> Del Toro. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and the Marvel Universe. That's right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can kind of find out all that information on othermusicdocumentary.com, and then we're linking out to Factory 25 because we're still signing up record stores and stuff, and it's better to just have that list on in one Great. place. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Um, so that April 17th, you'll be able to rent the film through all these different retail stores, video stores, bookstores, record stores, and it's half of the proceeds go to support them. And I, I'm a fan of Oscilloscope. I love that Russian dash cam movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My favorite documentaries of recent years. Um, yeah, and, and we're expecting the film to be rentable for like at least a week. Um, it'll probably be extended if it's doing well if it it does well yeah um and then later in the year we'll fingers crossed have some more like one-off theatrical screenings at like film series and stuff like that and then eventually it'll be on more you know traditional Traditional. like streaming services but Mm -hmm. for now i think we're really happy that the initial you know wide release of the film is going to be through these kind of independent retailers like other music um Mm -hmm. that are struggling in an even crazier way than other music was. Yeah, like this is like something that means a lot to us and we're so hopeful that like people can get some reprieve from it. And um, yeah, it just, just means a lot. Yeah. Uh, as sort of a follow-up on some of, on the main people, the co-owners of the store, Chris and Josh, do you know, could you share like what they've been doing since 2016? Yeah, um, well, Chris Vanderloo is a hero right now because he works at Trader Joe's. Oh, he does. And and he actually contracted uh, COVID. COVID-19, yeah. He got, Trader jo- he got COVID-19 working at Trader Joe's in Tribeca in Manhattan. Yeah, um, but and- he's okay now. He's good. Right. He, he had a mild case. He's actually back at work. and um, He's making sure that people in New York get fed. Yeah. Um, which is so amazing. And then... Um, Josh Maydell, the other co-owner, is now working for Secretly Canadian, the record label oh. and distributor. So he's like, Perfect. he works with them in sort of like an um, A&R capacity with record labels. He signs up new labels to like sign to be distributed through their distribution arm. 
That sounds like a perfect uh, fit for, yeah. Yeah. That label and secretly Canadian specifically is like, it makes sense. They, they both, they, they both took a little, you know, while to like find their thing, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, for like a little while after we had started doing festivals, people would be like, Oh, what are they doing now? And we would be like, uh, you know, that's like not, (laughs) yeah, yeah. But, um, they both are really happy you know, where, with where they ended up. Yeah. That's a a great ending to have. Um, like obviously people that really care about their employees and really care about music and care about New York. So, uh, as, as you guys do, uh, Mm -hmm. as we all do. So, uh, and I think it, you know, like I said, I really love the film. Uh, made me a crying middle-aged man (laughs) over here. Uh, but yeah, uh, everyone should check it out. April 17th, uh, go to the factory 25 website, go to, what was your website again? It's, it's the other music documentary.com.com. Uh, Rob and Paloma, thank you so much for joining us here on SubDoc. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Coming to New York and just like going to shows sometimes, it like wasn't enough. I wanted to be bombarded constantly. I wanted to have my ideas challenged and I wanted to be fucked with, you know? It was a place that I loved to go whenever I wanted to find something, something new or something I didn't know about. I knew that there would be someone there who's pretty invested, who had listened to it. We tried to have more of this kind of a holistic view of, of all these different things happening in, in music, in new music. Even if it was reissues, it was definitely like trying to be on top of what's happening now. To go find out what was new and, and like bands in the area and all that stuff as other music was, was, was where you had to go. When there was a whole batch of new stuff on that shelf, a bunch of new cards that somebody had written out, that was a good sign I was going to be listening to something pretty exciting. I would never trade the handwritten signs. It's done from a place of, I had to write about this right now when I was listening to it because I loved it so much. It's the first thing people see if the record's new, so I want to come in with my personal, like, passionate endorsement, like, as soon as possible. I'll keep rolling a little bit in case something else comes up that would be funny to, like, throw in or just uh, other thought. Everyone has a great thought. I I always hit stop and then someone says the best thing. (laughs) You've probably seen that as a filmmaker, right? Yeah, Yeah. that's what you do in documentaries. Yeah, you you don't hit hit stop. but anyway, we actually earlier we were talking about um, like how you're not sure about like young people collecting things like actual physical things. And like, I actually don't think that's I think it's like human nature to like collect things, you know, mm-hmm. like and and watching our daughter like she collects rocks and she has like a little collection outside of our house and i was like someday that is going to turn into books or comics or you know maybe record like maybe she'll be into music too i don't know she'll get a lot from um, us she'll get if a we, lot if we let her have them like, <laughs> i have i can't imagine myself wanting to let go of no them, we we kind of love our records but um yeah. But, you know, you see it in all young people that, like, they want to collect the things that they love. And I think it's just inherent in our nature. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that physical media is going to go away. I really, I feel hopeful in some ways. Like, when we were making the film, a lot of young people would come in and they were like, 
buying all these records and they were like, you know, because they knew they could research anything they want on the internet. And so they would come in with these insane lists and buy all these records. And when I was their age, like, I was just like bumbling around the store, like being like, what? I think this is cool. Like, you know, what's a flying burrito brothers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Um, There's that moment too, where like whole foods was selling vinyl. Right. Urban Outfitters (laughs) sells like Crosley turntables. Right. They have insanely marked up records. It's just like, you can go get these records so much cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, In a dollar bin. (laughs) I have to say our film really is not about like vinyl culture or record collecting it's about music and to me it's like it doesn't matter what the format is or whether it's streaming or physical it's like other music was just a place that celebrated like the music itself not the objects that it was like embedded on so but what it's worth yeah like you know we're like basically what i i thought when we were making the film you know, when we started making the film, I thought that like, oh, we're going to find out that people are like only going to care about streaming. But what I'm saying is that people will always want a little bit of the physical as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's like, there's going to be a mix and that's good. I think ultimately. We mentioned video stores a lot. I I have like this whole connection to the video store world, obviously just from being a film fan but also i ended up doing a comedy series in the basement of a video store in san francisco uh last weekend video which is you know was around for like 20 years almost you know and they were obviously doing poorly in like the early 2010 like 2012 as i started doing comedy stuff there and it basically created this whole other world inside of the store that was like helping keep the store afloat Mm -hmm. and it was just like People are coming in for this, but they're not still renting the DVDs at all. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But like the, I really wish I had a better documentation of like the final weeks. Cause that whole process you, they go through of like, just like taking the shelves down, like stripping the paint, stripping the carpet, you know, doing all that stuff. It just was like, it really brought up a lot of stuff for me. Cause I'm just like, Oh, I feel like I've gone through this before too. And then also I've worked in a record store like I worked in a record store that was just starting and like I was one of the first employees before they opened up. So I got to do all this stuff like make the bin card, like make make the little dividers and like print out the names that go on the dividers and everything. And it was really interesting to just see that process. And like a few years ago, I was like, should I try to do this in Los Feliz? And, uh, you know, it, I didn't do it. And right now I feel good about that decision. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, I mean... It is, it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out on the other side of this. It seems like we really need like the federal government to give money to all small businesses right now. Yeah. It's really the, the real answer rather than to, uh, you know. Just uh, give it to like giant corporations. Yeah. People yeah. that are already rich and will be fine. So, yeah. Uh, That's my little soapbox <laughs> on my podcast. Uh, it's turning into a, like a different kind of podcast, but um, yeah, no. Um, what's some? What are you, some of your favorite records you got from the store? I just this. I should have asked this earlier. Oh my god! Oh, like it's so- it's hard to say because we have like several thousand records and so many of them. And how was for, moving for, across country with all that shit? Well, so Funny or Die paid for our move, so we. Okay. 
Um, we had professional movers pack all of our stuff except for the records. We wouldn't let them do that. <laughs> yeah. Do so, we, so we did that. We did that ourselves. And we like, packed the records, kept them in mostly alphabetical order, um, taped them up. Uh, so it wasn't that bad. That was like the only thing we had to pack. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I guess like, you know, we, we had the employee discount to our benefit for years. So like most records that weren't used records, I purchased through other music, other music for 15 yeah. years. Um, um, but there's stuff in the film, like Vashti Bunyan, this yeah. like British, like folk singer songwriter, sort of like Nick Drake ish, um, was like a really important record to everybody. Other music that I still love. I mean, we kind of really like put a lot of our favorite other music things in the movie through the soundtrack, Jackson mm -hmm. C. Frank, animal collective, you know, um, it's sort of like um, a cool way to discover all the things that we discovered at the time. And we do have like some streaming um, soundtrack playlists that are linked on our website um, yeah. that are just like, it's, it's just songs that are in the movie. They're mostly available on Spotify and Apple Music. So I think we have like a Spotify playlist and Apple Music playlist and a YouTube playlist people can listen to. Um, since this pandemic started like a, a week ago, I like had a, you know, I was spiraling and reading too much news and I decided we had to do something to like, that was like positive and would keep us off the news. So like I decided we have to listen to every record starting like eight from a, like at the beginning to the end. So we've been doing that for a week now. Like we just listen to every record. Like we're in the, we're in the, we're in the mid bees. Bees. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it's been like, it's been kind of amazing because like, it really does make us just listen to the music. But what I was going to say is that we'll have an actual number of how many of the records we have are, are from other <laughs> yes, music. Or how many and, we have. It's just yeah, an estimate right yeah, now. Yeah, we don't really know. Well, that'll be, it'll take us like five months of full on all like day all day to get through everything. <laughs> yeah. We might have the time. I was thinking about doing something similar, but it'd be just like creating a cell pile. I'm like, I think mm -hmm. some of these are going to have to go. Like I brought these down with me from Oakland, but some of these are not going to make it to the next move. <laughs> yeah. I think we've, we're, we're about a hundred records in and I think we've pulled one thing that we're going to get rid of. And yeah. then we found two doubles. Of, yeah. We and then we, we were had. like, oh, we have two of these. Like, hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, um, yeah. Two people's combined collections. Yeah. We did sell a lot of our doubles like when we got together. Oh, yeah. Actually going through the A to a to Z, well, and we're only on B, there have been a few things that I'm like, I know I had this record by this band. Like, why did I get rid of that? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so there's some regrets. Happened to go to Mount Analog when it was still open? Yeah, so yeah. Um, Massa Tagenia, the owner of Mount Analog, was a, worked with me at Other Music. Yeah, yeah. I, thought I saw her, I thought I saw a photo of her in there. Yeah, there's yeah. A, we, we, didn't, we didn't end up finding time to schedule yeah, an interview was, with her, but there's a picture of her in the phone. There's a picture of her, and yeah, we were, I was friends with her back then, and Rob was friends, you know. Yeah, that was a great um, store that was um, in Highland Park, where we now live in Los Angeles for I know, a while. and it's silly, because she's down the street from us, and like, well, when Mount Analog was still here, um, and she really did kind of like try to keep the whole aesthetic of other music in that store, 
So we were like, oh, how cool would it be to show like an employee who like started their own business, you know, but we just like couldn't get it together. To and I, yeah. I think by the time we were finishing the movie, yeah. the store was closing up and closing. has since yeah. since hasn't reopened yet. Maybe yeah. it will someday. Yeah. And uh, I've seen her table at some stuff and I think she even mentioned she might do it again. But after all this, the thing is like the rents might be lower after this. So maybe some people are going to start their passion project after this. That's also a possibility. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Great talking to you guys. Um, Mm -hmm. Really. It it would be fun to do it in person, but you know, this works just as well. Catch up with us in five years on whatever the next film is. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know what? We, we just like take what we can in a time like this. So this is great. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Subdoc at subdocpodcast.com. Recapping reality since 2015. Our theme song was written by David Siegel and our show was engineered by Will Scoville. For as little as $1 a month, you can donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash subdocpodcast. If you want to help us in other ways, please share the show. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Find Paco and George's comedy gigs on the About Us page on the site. Subdoc is by Doc fans for Doc fans. So if you want to advertise with Subdoc, got a film or opinions, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you and what you're docking out on. Email us at subdocpodcast at gmail.com.